So before we even dive into the text and look at the story itself of that fugitive who found faith, forgiveness, and freedom, let's consider some background information that's important for us to settle. There's two topics I'd like to consider for background. Uh, The actual background to the book and then also the first century practice of slavery. To read a book and even to see how much is in the scriptures about slavery without approaching it from a social justice type of issue is something we ought to understand. I want to make it clear tonight that I approach the book of Philemon from what's called the traditional understanding, and the majority of commentators follow this same understanding to the background. At the same time, I'd want to acknowledge that there's some scholars who say, no, I think it was more like this or more like that. And they have some historical precedent if you were to study slavery and the conditions, especially in the first century. But Calvin summarized a traditional uh, view uh, to the circumstances behind the text very concisely. He simply said this, sending back a runaway slave and thief, he, the apostle Paul, supplicates pardon for him. He just made it as succinctly as one can imagine. And so that's a compelling story. This little book has a very compelling story behind it. At the same time, it has a compelling story. It has a magnificent picture of Christ paying it all for us that we certainly wouldn't want to miss. Uh, The traditional view says Onesimus was a slave of Philemon in Colossae, and he absconded with some money or some possessions, and he fled as a runaway slave. He fled furtively. Uh, The traditional position is that he fled far to Rome, to the large metropolis, where he can easily blend in and not easily be caught. Although there are some who say he only fled to Ephesus. And when I read that, I don't see the text supporting that point of view. But I never like to state something dogmatically from a pulpit when, when the scriptures don't explicitly tell you that. Most would say Paul at that time was in house arrest in Rome. And somehow Philemon got to him. Did Philemon meet someone out on the street and said, you've got to meet this man, you've got to come to him. We don't know that. The scriptures don't tell us. So there's a little bit of other conjecture that's out there. It's not worth the airtime this evening. Now let's talk at a little bit more length and a little bit more deeply about the subject of slavery. First, we must, when reading the scriptures not see slavery through a 21st century American set of eyes. If we were to think of slavery in the U.S. in our time, or preceding our time, but much closer to us in time, versus the first century, we would be very off in our view of it in reading the scriptures. And in fact, we may be led to cry cry out, why didn't they stand up long before Martin Luther King Jr. stood up and made his speech that was referred to 
this morning. The American experience in the Old South was virtually, not entirely, but almost completely one race of people and a particular type of conditions. That wasn't the ancient practice. The ancient practice was mostly criminals and captives captives of war who would have been enslaved. You'll hear in a minute in a little historical video that perhaps 40% of the population were slaves of all different kinds. So we'll learn more about that. Now, as I make this comparison, I know that all of you would feel exactly as I do, whether it was first century slavery, excuse me. You know, you can't do that in Samoa. It's considered very rude to stand and drink or eat. I'm so glad I'm in America tonight. (laughs) No matter what, we would all say without hesitation that slavery in any form is evil. It violates the fact that we are all created in God's image. And so whether it's in the first century or it's back in the 19th century, when someone is regarded as property, when someone is uh, considered tools of their master, it's an evil. How it's approached in the scriptures is interesting, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's just watch this short video about... I particularly focus in on how were runaway slaves treated if they were caught. Let's watch this. I think it's instructive. In the culture of ancient Rome, the idea of individual liberty carried a very different connotation than it does in our own day and age. An astounding figure that sheds light on the significant effects that the slavery system had on Roman society was the fact that about 40% of the whole population was made up of slaves during the height of the Roman Empire. What were some of the terrible realities that these slaves experienced, particularly those who had the courage to escape from their masters? When they were finally apprehended, what were the consequences of this turn of events? How were slaves punished if they were recaptured? Runaway slaves in ancient Rome suffered severe and brutal penalties if they were caught, which functioned not only as a punishment but also as a deterrence for future slaves who might consider escaping their masters. Physical punishment. This was a frequent practice that could involve branding, flogging, or whipping the victim. A frequent practice was to brand the fugitive's forehead with the letter F for fugitivus, runaway a mark that was intended to be both permanent and noticeable as a reminder of the individual's attempt to flee from capture. Ergastulum. This was a private jail built by the Romans for the purpose of housing slaves. Slaves were confined there in chains and were made to work. The conditions were incredibly unforgiving, with very little light and air circulation. The purpose of this method of mental torment was to shatter the will of the slave so that they might be more easily controlled. Increased workloads and degraded roles. As a sort of punishment, some reclaimed slaves were forced to perform more rigorous labor or were given roles that were considered lower in status. They might be forced to work in the fields or mines, which are notorious for their harsh working conditions, or they might be forced to perform menial tasks in public facilities. Sale to gladiatorial schools. Slaves were sometimes put up for sale so that they may be trained as gladiators. Due to the severe and violent nature of gladiatorial competitions, 
This was a harsh fate that generally resulted in a short lifespan for the gladiator. Death. The most severe sanction was death by crucifixion, which was the traditional method of execution. This was typically reserved for slaves who had a history of fleeing their masters or who were considered to be particularly problematic. And so just a little bit of history, and as we imagine this runaway slave who had also defrauded his master in some way, he always had to look over his shoulder. He always had to wonder if someone could identify him. Now, as we consider slavery in the first century, I want to temper a little or balance a little what we've just seen, the severity of the type of punishment. I even cut some of it out. There's a section where sometimes a runaway slave would be returned and be amputated in part so that he couldn't run away, and other acts of cruelty under the ferocity of the Roman Empire. Uh, Slaves in those days could be bought, sold, inherited, exchanged. They could be seized if the master owed a debt to someone else. Certainly it was a scourge at any time in history. However, the Judeo-Christian approach to slavery was to make change gradually. You would find that among them, slave owners and slaves became friends. Legislation was passed in AD 20 to entitle a slave to a trial when he was accused. So there were things addressing the conditions. Many slaves of Jews and Christians would gain freedom at quite a young age. It was not uncommon. They were not like we would think of slaves who only did menial labor and the families were torn apart and they were denied education. No, many slaves were artists, musicians, doctors, teachers, librarians, accountants. It's important to understand that the worldview in the first century was that slavery was a normal part of society. When you have over a third of your people in that class and a worldview that just says that's how it is, it's a norm which certainly needed to be changed. You will find this also about slavery. It is one of the most compelling and recurring metaphors in the Bible. Paul, of course, we know this, would refer to himself frequently as doulos, as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would uh, address us, and the scriptures would address us over and over, not to be enslaved to sin, that it's your master, but rather to be enslaved to Christ. Neither Jesus nor the apostles took it head on. And you may say, why not? And I really have been thinking about that. I believe that they wouldn't take that on lest it be this social justice cause that eclipsed the gospel. Rather, in the scriptures, what we find when we read the book of Philemon, Paul refers to the time that he led Philemon to the Lord years earlier. And how a rich slave owner, rich enough to have a church in his house, rich enough to be a slave owner, could receive the gospel and a fleeing runaway thief of a slave 
could also receive the gospel. The gospel could reach the richest or the poorest and whatever person. In other words, gospelizing is the most essential thing. Sounds like we ought to make that a theme this year, don't you think? Gospelizing trumps moralizing or politicizing any day of the week. If I can give a current parallel, right? In society today, oh, the crisis at the border and the illegals, the illegal immigrants and the blah, blah, blah. And let's debate about it and this kind of thing and turn it into a big thing. If anybody has reason to feel that way, I can say it's me because we've been laboring for so long and dotting every I and crossing every T for Emmy to legally become a citizen while watching all this going on. You know what? All I know is it's an opportunity to reach more people with the gospel. So I won't be checking anybody's papers or asking any of those questions. These are just opportunities. Now, do I have an opinion about that? Would I like to see different legislation? Sure. But that's not my cause. You're not going to see me out picketing or with banners or anything like that. If we would realize as gospelizers that even what could be considered a deep social justice type of issue, and there's plenty of them. We heard about that in Pastor's sermon this morning. He kind of did a little shotgun thing on uh, homosexuality and perversion and this thing. And all the things we can get all excited and worked up about, we ought to have informed opinions informed by the scriptures on all of them. But they can derail us and they could sidetrack us. They didn't with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they didn't with the Apostle Paul. Praise God for that. Let's look at just a few of the scriptures. I'm watching my time. How much the Bible does address the slave and the slave owner. Because the most important thing would be for both to come to know the Lord. And then as believers to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. To reach more people. To make more Christ followers. Galatians 3.28, and I'm going to fire some of these. Some of these I'll just give you a reference if you want to do a little study sometime of all the things that are said of slaves and slave owners. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12, talking about the body of Christ, for just as the body is one and as many members Verses 12 and 13. And all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. All are made to drink of the one spirit. So a gospelizer would be most concerned with saying, forget any lines that divide us or blur us or pit us against each other. Every person of every condition, of every rung on the hierarchical ladder needs to be reached with the gospel. And once they are reached with the gospel, they need to fellowship and reach others with the gospel. Colossians, well, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9 has a lot to say. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And if you would read down, you would see it says a lot more. And in verse 9, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
Colossians 3.22 and 4.1, you could actually read that whole passage. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, etc., etc. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I could read 1 Timothy 6.1 and 2. Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. I like the second verse. Those who have believing masters. Onesimus, listen. Those who have believing masters. Philemon is a believer. Must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather they must serve all the better. Etc. Etc. You see in Titus chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. More and more. So the scriptures would address the importance of anyone and everyone receiving Christ and treating one another right, rightly, justly, godly. And so now with the context, some context behind us, let's get into the text tonight in this little, in this rich little book we find in the scriptures. I was sharing with my small group this morning. One time someone asked my brother, what's your favorite instrument? Because he plays a whole bunch. And his answer was, whatever one I'm playing at the time. And that's just how I feel about the scriptures. Whatever book I'm in at the time. A week and a half ago, I was all excited about Titus. It's my favorite book in the Bible. Well, tonight, Philemon is my favorite book in the Bible. It's an awesome little book if you look at it. There are three main figures. Philemon, the slave owner, he was the one who was wronged. Onesimus, the fugitive, he's the one who did the wrong. And Paul, the prisoner, who was laboring to reconcile the two. He was mediating toward reconciliation. And so right from the first verse, the Apostle Paul simply presents himself as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the SV says, for, the better translation is of. And so he starts out right from the beginning. I am the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his 13 epistles, the Apostle Paul nine times refers to himself as an apostle. In, in all nine of them, the exceptions are First and Second Thessalonians, where he doesn't identify himself except by name, and very strategically in the book of Philippians, where he introduces himself simply as servant, because the heart of that book is going to be about humble, obedient service of the Lord Jesus Christ and us having that mind. But in this book, he departs from the norm, and he introduces himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies himself. He does that in other books. You'll find it in Ephesians 3.1, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He does it in Ephesians 4.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, no, no, that's, the, that's Romans, I therefore, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called. And in 2 Timothy, be not thou ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So on numerous occasions, he identifies himself that way. As always, Paul was absolutely certain of the sovereignty of God. He was not the prisoner of Rome. He was not the prisoner of Nero or of Caesar or of anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he is in prison, likely house arrest in the context of here, uh, of this book. And still... Not only winning people to the Lord, 
but also writing scripture and helping Christians reconcile even after something that was terrible. For a slave to defraud his master like that was of great offense. Some like to say, well, he probably fled away because he was being mistreated. But the book doesn't bear that out at all, as we'll see in the next few verses after the greeting. Everything we know about, Ones- uh, everything we know about Philemon is that he was a loving, kind master. But Paul, absolutely certain of his sovereignty in all things, he saw himself as part of that greater story, the greatest story. We hear that language a lot here, and I've picked it up. I love it. As part of God's story. And so he was the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw himself as part of that greater story. And so his every perception and choice and action was driven by that thought. Onesimus would need to see himself as the bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. Rather than just the runaway slave of Philemon. Oh, that we would see every circumstance that way through that same lens. Think of all that Paul accomplished while a prisoner. And so whatever conditions we meet, whatever circumstances in life, if we could have that. I am a cancer patient, not of RWJ or not of Capital Health or not of this hospital, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a this or a that or any way we might identify and not getting to the deep root of our identity, but in anything to just be able to always say, I serve a sovereign God and I'm so absolutely certain of his sovereignty and so trusting of his sovereignty that whatever befalls me. Well, we're in verse one, the first three words. But you can park there. And see that. And so not only would Paul see that. And I tell you, when you see yourself as part of God's story, as part of Christ's story, as he works through you in your life, you're going to do just like the Apostle Paul did in this book. That your actions, your counsel, your directions are going to picture Christ. And people are going to look at your life and the events in your life and the people you interact with and say, wow, what a picture of Christ that is. When Paul, even I, Paul, with my own hand, tell you that if he owes you anything, I will repay it. What a picture of Christ and what he did for us. See, the more you have this heart to reach people, as we heard this morning, to see people deeply to seek them, the more you do that, there are going to be events in your life where people will say, wow, isn't that a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? It goes on in Apphia, our sister, most suppose that was Mrs. Philemon, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, most think that's the son, and the church in your house. And of course, the greeting grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as much as we always say, and you always hear it, I hear preachers all the time and read it, this was a very personal letter from Paul to Philemon. Yeah, well, it included a lot more. Because as he was sending with Tychicus and Onesimus, the letter, the scrolls also for the Colossians, he also sent this one, and he said, this isn't just for you. Read it to the whole church. Now, would you have some cynical view? Oh, the Apostle Paul was doing this to leverage 
He was doing this to manipulate Philemon into doing what he wants. Absolutely not. It was meant for them. It's meant for us to look at the pattern and to see it and say, Oh, Lord, help us to follow that pattern. When you minister to others in a Christ-like way, you will both model Christ and fill your life with pictures of Christ for others to see. You see, the Apostle Paul was asking long before Charles Sheldon, the one who wrote in his steps, Charles M. Sheldon, long before he wrote that fictitious novel about the church that was challenged to consider everything through WWJD, The Apostle Paul was doing that in every circumstance. What would Jesus do? He would aim for reconciliation. What would Jesus do? He would forgive. What would Jesus do? He would pay the account in full. And so now we've considered Paul. Look at verses 4 to 7. And look at Philemon for a while. He wasn't with a Roman mindset, I will work my slaves to death and they're my property. We have no evidence that there was a great hunt. He didn't lead a charge and say, go get him. He can't run this far over this landscape and hilly ground. He can't run more than 15 miles. We don't have any evidence that that happened. But when Paul writes, the only things we know about Philemon from the scriptures are here. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus, and for all the saints. I pray that the koinonia, the sharing of your faith, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That is a lovely portrait of a man. His name means one who kisses. It means affectionate. It means loving. And so we can presume from this that he wasn't that hard taskmaster. He was a man of wealth. He used it to have church in his home. He was a man of wealth who would naturally have slaves in that day and age, but we have no evidence that he was harsh in his treatment of them. And so we must conclude that the wrong that Onesimus did was not justified. I don't imagine him as a cruel overload with slaves. I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see a Roman mindset. Now let's get to the heart of this epistle. It's an appeal. And look at each of the Bases, each basis of the appeal the Apostle Paul makes. Appeal is a legal term, although in the text the word is not a legal word. Elsewhere it's translated beseech or to plead. But you could almost see it through that lens for a minute or two and think the Apostle Paul now has to make an appeal. By all rights, Philemon... It's fully within your power and authority, and you would be justified legally not to receive Onesimus, not to forgive Onesimus, 
but rather to turn him into the authorities. Let him face the punishment he would face. Brand him with the F for fugitivus, for a fugitive. You have every right to do that. The Apostle Paul cannot appeal to Philemon based on the previous character of Onesimus. He cannot appeal to him based on what he did. You never find him saying, but you know, poor Onesimus, his parents didn't raise him well, and his mama ran off when he was in sixth grade. And you know, Onesimus was just really struggling under the lack of freedom, and he doesn't do any of that. But he's going to make an appeal on different grounds as we look at it. First of all, he makes the appeal based on his relationship to Philemon. Look at verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Many preachers of old have said, imagine yourself in a courtroom standing before the God of heaven. And he says, why should I let you in? And what answer do you have? But Jesus says, because I paid his penalty. You should let him in on the basis of our relationship. Because I was humble and obedient even unto death, the death of the cross, and I paid it all. An old account was settled long ago, down on my knees. Alleluia. I try to get down to those notes. The alto who goes bass when a trio becomes a quartet. I love how you guys did that tonight. So Paul, based on his relationship with Philemon, says, I make this appeal on this basis. Praise the Lord. He also makes an appeal onto his new relationship with Onesimus. How did they meet? How did that encounter happen? The scriptures don't tell us. But all we know or can suppose from the text without straining the text is that Onesimus, a sinner, a runaway slave, a lawbreaker, who was deserving of great punishment and penalty, met the Apostle Paul somehow. And the Apostle Paul got to lead him to the Lord. Philemon, the way I led you to the Lord way back then, I got to lead him to the Lord. And praise God, he's more than a slave, more than a bondservant. He's a brother. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And had a great basis Philemon, I'm going to stack these things up, and he'll say in the end, and I'm confident you'll do this and more. On the basis of Onesimus' changed life and character, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. You know that Onesimus means useful. That's the name. It means useful, profitable. So Paul's doing a play on words here. He says, formerly he was useless, unprofitable. We might even say the word worthless. But now indeed he is useful to you and to me. There's been a change. It went from Achristos to Eucristos. 
from useless to useful. Let me tell you, Philemon, this guy got saved and it was the real deal. He was of no value, of no profit. He was useless. He was supposed to be your servant. He was supposed to serve loyally. I'm imagining here this text doesn't directly say it, but it seems to imply, and you were good to him as a master, and he was useless. He used you, but now he's very useful. Before, his name was Onesimus, but he was un-Onesimus. But now I return him back, and he is Onesimus to you. And based on his changed character, based on the fact that he got born again, and he's a new man in Christ, receive him back. I appeal to you on that. This was no easy believism, say a prayer, he got saved. He didn't pull the wool over the Apostle Paul's eyes. He was useful. For I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I loved how you read that, uh, Brother Kevin. When you read that particular line, you read it with heart. When I send my son back to you, the one who got saved, who got born again, who has totally changed when he became a Jesus follower, I'm sending back to you my son. I'm sending back to you my heart. The bonds of Christian relationships. The Apostle Paul, as learned as he was with his multiple citizenship and all of those things, and a scholar, the author of Romans, had a bond with a young runaway slave, and it was like a son to him. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In the same way that I love him, Philemon, I love you, and I won't presume upon the authority I have as, a gospel, uh, as an apostle. I won't force you, but I appeal to you, I beseech you, I plead with you, I entreat you, receive him back. Verse 15, on the basis of God's sovereignty, just as Paul opened saying, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, seeing God in his sovereignty, he says, for this perhaps is why he parted you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Philemon, as you look at this, you'll probably be upset, and Mrs. Philemon will probably be really upset because maybe he stole some of her good jewelry, I don't know. And people may be upset, therefore read this whole thing before the church. So they all see this testimony of his changed life too. But look at it through this lens. Not that he wronged you and he left and he doesn't deserve to come back. God had a purpose. Perhaps God's purpose in all of this was that he would leave unsaved and worthless and come back saved and very worthwhile. He would go, he would come back. Before, he never lived up to his name. He was a disgrace to his name. But now, he'll come back. Perhaps that was what God is doing always. So I bring you back to that first phrase in the first verse. Always see things through the sovereignty of God. It will help you forgive. I endured such abuse, and I endured abandonment, and I endured this, and I endured that. But when I step back and I see it, Through the lens of God's sovereignty, I could say, thank you, Lord. 
And though some of the scars that I received through that, and I am not speaking hypothetically, it's part of my own testimony, I could look back and say, thank you, God, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because the compassion, the desire to love, you use those things for so many great purposes, I likely would not have been saved if the course were different. So I could look at it through the eyes of God's sovereignty. In verse 16, another basis, I just see one after another after another. He says, and you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more so to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Don't miss this. This is really radical. Because he's not only saying, would you just receive him back and forgive him and I'll pay the debt. Not to mention that you owe me even your own life, but I'll pay the debt. I'll sign it with my own hand. Would you just receive him back and get him back serving? Just restore him to what he was. No, this is radical. This is saying you as a rich slave owner, take this runaway slave, restore him. And then relate to him as an equal. The gospel is the great equalizer. The church is the great equalizer. Because the relationship that you share one with another now is that bond of the gospel. It's that bond of love. Isn't that great? When you are a gospelizer, when you see people through those lens, there's nobody so high and knowledgeable and educated or rich or whatever or anyone so low in the lowest gutter you can imagine enslaved to an addiction that has them on the street there's no one beyond the reach of the gospel praise God for that and two people who know the Lord can have a bond oh how we need to see it through those eyes and Paul is appealing to Philemon on that basis that with God There is no impartiality. No longer relate to him as property. No longer relate to him as a tool. Relate to him as a brother. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, it's the same word as share earlier, koinonia. So as long as you consider me your partner, the one with whom we share such fellowship, receive him as you would receive me. Imagine that. I could just see Philemon and the wife talking about this. They say, okay, yep, I'll receive him back. I'll forgive you. Paul said, I'll pay for it. Now go to your quarters and do your work. But honey, look, didn't you read the letter? The letter says receive him as you would receive me. Would you send him, Paul, to the quarters? Of course I wouldn't do that. Receive him as you would receive me. Amen? Now I'll tell you what, if the Apostle Paul were coming to my house, I'd put out a spread I'd make sure there's extra pillows soft and hard on his bed. I'd make sure that I received him 
Remember, when you read something like this in the scriptures, you must remember the first century mentality of hospitality, of receiving someone. Wow. The gospel changes everything. And now we get to the the last part here, the part we've sung about, the part we love. It's a great crescendo to end on. On the basis of Paul's promise for repayment, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Praise God, what a picture of Christ. It's already been sung about. We sang Jesus paid it all. We sang about that old account that was settled. And Paul here picturing Christ marvelously says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even yourself. And then he ends, I'll just take these last three verses, we don't need to deal with the uh, closing remarks. Paul goes back to his first appeal, Philemon, I appeal to you on the basis of your character. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, as he said earlier, that Philemon was known for refreshing the saints. Confident of your obedience... I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. As much as I'm asking you to receive him, to forgive him, to restore him, to regard him as a brother in Christ, not as a piece of property, as a slave, I know you because of your character. You will do more. Onesimus is a fugitive who found faith, forgiveness, and freedom. Praise God for it. We can be certain that there was a day when the devil charged his hordes and said, just like Tommy Lee Jones, go get him. While he was a runaway slave, not yet saved. As he fled to the city on seven hills, to Sin City, he's on the run. Go get him. I imagine he charged the Roman Empire. He's a runaway slave. Go get him. Brand him. F for a fugitive and a failure while you're at it. But God charged with greater force and great authority, with great love. He said, Christian, go get him. Paul, go get him. I say to you tonight, as we still consider our theme gospel lies, that God charges us to do the same. Go get him. There are people running around running past you, fleeing. They're fugitives, fleeing from God, rejecting God, rebellious against him. And they're running by you every day, fleeing from God when they need to run toward him, fleeing from slavery of a guilty conscience, trying to flee from a bottle or a needle or whatever it may be, trying to flee from addiction to pornography and sexual perversion, from pleasure and entertainment, from the mighty dollar, from whatever. And they're running past us every day. There are a thousand Onesimuses running by us. Go get them. You see, just like that last little video clip, there was a day when Dr. Richard Kimball's running stopped. It was the last word of the series. And even in the episode... They declared the date that it ran, August 29th, 1967. There are people running by you every day. 
The running stopped for me on December 25th, 1996, when I realized that I can't work my way to heaven. And the one I was rejecting is the one who paid it all. Don't ever forget the day that your running stopped. And don't let them keep running by you. No matter what your circumstances, what your age, what your conditions, you can be in prison, in house arrest, chained, and still, for someone, the running stops. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this dear, dear book. Help us to live in such a way that our lives would provide pictures of Christ in the way that Paul's did in this sweet book of Philemon. And now, Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Amen.